Today on Eco Report. The committee members of council have been very receptive to innovative ways to make it easier for Bloomingtonians and folks in Monterey County to access uh, healthy and nutritious local food. Correspondent Sarah Vaughn speaks with Ryan Conway, head of the steering committee of the Bloomington Food Policy Council. Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning, and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Don Guerra. Factory farms in Indiana could soon operate with less strict pollution regulations. That is, if Indiana House Bill 1494 is adopted as law. The bill is currently awaiting a vote in the House Environmental Affairs Committee. The Hoosier Environmental Council says it is seriously concerned about this factory farm pollution bill, saying the bill will negatively affect rural Hoosiers and further pollute the environment. Kim Ferraro is the council's senior staff attorney. Well, we have several concerns about this bill, and um, just to provide some context, one has to understand that existing regulation of factory farms, um, otherwise known as confined feeding operations in Indiana, is already failing to protect our waterways and people. And House Bill 1494 would further weaken our already um, weakened regulations. And it does this on a few fronts. Um, The first thing that the bill would do would be to eliminate the requirement that um, a new CAFO would have to get a permit before being constructed, or um, an existing CAFO uh, would no longer have to get a permit before expanding. So that's obviously a a problem when um, you consider that the purpose of permitting is to ensure that environmental safeguards and regulations are met. Factory farms house thousands of animals, and those thousands of animals produce a lot of waste collectively 14 times more waste than the humans in Indiana, according to Ferraro. The Hoosier Environmental Council says the bill would take away the ability of residents to share their concerns about a factory farm being built or expanding near them. The Bloomington Environmental Commission recently published the Bloomington Environmental Action Plan, which includes their strategies and recommendations for cutting down on greenhouse gas emissions in the city. The plan outlines goals or action plans in seven different categories, buildings and energy, transportation, air quality, urban ecology, water, food and agriculture, and waste. Linda Thompson, the senior environmental planner in Bloomington's Department of Planning and Transportation, said the city has not adopted this document as an official plan. It's feasible if the city adopted these action plans 
and really put a lot of effort and money toward them. And we all know that that doesn't always happen because just because it's the Environmental Commission's wish list doesn't mean that that gets to come to the front of the line in front of everything else the city has has to do. So, I mean, this isn't the administration's priority list. This is the Environmental Commission's list. Thompson said that the commission's entire wish list may not be incorporated into the city's comprehensive plan, but she did say that she hopes at least a few of the action items will be included. If, if the city could pull out some of the actions in here and use them in, uh, for their own environmental plan, a city-sanctioned environmental plan, that would be great. But this is, this is a plan that did not, you know, come from the administration. Um, they read it, they saw it, but the ideas are, are from the Environmental Commission. So I just don't, don't want anybody to think that this is uh, an uppercase city plan. For more information about the action plan, you can call Bloomington's Planning and Transportation Department at 812-349-3423 or email them at environmental at bloomington.indiana.com. The Veterans Administration, or VA, has offered a plan to spare the biggest trees at Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis, where they had previously proposed clear-cutting the rare urban old-growth forest. The VA gave relatively little public notice of its intent to build a veterans monument and to cut down the trees to do so. Some of the trees are more than 350 years old. After a legal battle and public outcry, the VA offered to not cut any tree with a circumference of 40 inches or greater. Eco-Report correspondent Norm, Norm Holy contacted Jeff Stant, executive director of the Indiana Forest Alliance, for a response. Stant made the point that the VA offer did not go far enough, and that while the largest trees are important, the surrounding forest ecosystems are equally as important and will still be cleared. Under pressure from Donald Trump, the Army Corps of Engineers halted its environmental impact assessment of the Dakota Access Pipeline on Wednesday and granted the pipeline's final construction easement to Dakota Access LLC. The company can now legally begin drilling and construction of the pipeline underneath the Missouri River. Since the easement was issued, thousands of demonstrators and water protectors have taken to the streets in New York, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Denver, and other major cities in so-called last-stand emergency actions. Meanwhile, in defiance of the legally binding Fort Laramie Treaty, the United States of America continues its illegal occupation of Lakota land outside of the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. Militarized police, the National Guard, Highway Patrol, private pipeline security, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs continue to protect the pipeline project and target indigenous leaders with arrest and trumped-up felony charges like inciting a riot. After being charged with inciting a riot, Chase Iron Eyes of the Lakota People's Law Project gave a news briefing outside of the Morton County Jail on February 3rd. He said, quote, We are concerned with the way that the narrative is being framed. 
It's no secret that the North Dakota law enforcement media, governor, and legislators are colluding to villainize and dehumanize water protectors. On February 4th, video from the Sacred Stone Camp appears to show Bureau of Indian Affairs officers following and then injuring water protectors by striking them in the knees with police batons. In more indigenous environmental news... A new investigation by Global Witness has named the president of Honduras, Gladys Aurora Lopez, as one of several high-level politicians and business executives connected to a violent crackdown on environmental activists. Many of the activists are part of indigenous families who resist state and corporate infrastructure and mining projects that destroy their ancestral lands and displace their communities. The United States government has also come under fire for backing the Honduran state forces, which have committed or supported many of the violent acts. According to Global Witness, Honduras is the most dangerous country in the world to be an environmental activist. Since 2010, more than 120 people have been killed for protesting against the destruction or theft of their lands and waters, among them last year's high-profile assassination, of indigenous activist Berta Caceres. Back in the U.S., the House and Senate voted to eliminate a regulation that restricts coal companies from dumping mining waste into streams and other waterways. Donald Trump will have the final say on the vote. The environmental group Appalachian Voices estimates that since the 1990s, coal companies have dumped waste into over 2,000 miles of streams in Appalachia from mountaintop removal mining. When mining waste gets into water supplies, it can have severe health consequences for the local and regional ecosystems and the people who live nearby. Environmental regulations can be difficult to overturn but the stream protection rule was relatively easy. Because it took a long time to complete and was finalized so recently, on December 19th, it could be overturned by the 1996 Congressional Review Act, which permits the House and Senate to eliminate any recently finalized regulation with simple majority votes in both chambers, as long as the president agrees. Recently, EcoReport ran a story about seven environmental organizations that filed a lawsuit against the Department of Energy, or DOE, to prepare an environmental impact statement before permitting liquid high-level radioactive waste from being trucked on interstate highways from a storage tank in Chalk River, Ontario, Canada, to the DOE's Savannah River facility in South Carolina. Never has liquid high-level radioactive waste been shipped by truck through the U.S. On February 2nd, a U.S. District Court judge approved the shipments. In denying the plaintiff's requests, she cited precedents that she said obligated her to, quote, defer to the wisdom of the DOE, provided its decision is reasoned and rational, unquote. She also said she accepted the DOE's contention that because it already had evaluated the dangers of shipping powdered radioactive waste, there was no need for a new assessment of liquid waste. The opponents of the shipments vowed to continue fighting the ruling. After decades of declining, the levels of mercury in some Great Lakes fish and birds are increasing. 
In wildlife, mercury damages reproduction, growth, and behavior, and can even be fatal. In humans, eating contaminated fish is the main cause of mercury exposure. The chemical is most damaging to brain development in fetuses, infants, and children. Children exposed to mercury as fetuses are more likely than others to have problems with memory, attention, language, and motor skills. Climate change increases mercury in the Great Lakes in complex ways. It's estimated that 37% of current mercury emissions from human activity comes from burning fossil fuels, especially coal. From 1992 to 2014, mercury concentrations in the air fell significantly in the northeastern U.S. because coal plants in the area were cleaned up. However, President Trump has indicated that he will reinvigorate coal burning and eliminate environmental and health regulations aimed at curbing its effects. On February 6th, 170 conservation organizations urged the U.S. Senate to reject Representative Ryan Zink as the next Secretary of the Department of the Interior. Zink would be in charge of the nation's over 1,500 endangered species, as well as over 500 million acres of public land and minerals, minerals leasing, for oil, gas, and coal around the country and in our oceans. During his two years in Congress, Zink earned a 3% rating from the League of Conservation Voters. At his January 17th nomination hearing, Zink offered no indication that he would manage the Department of the Interior differently from what his congressional voting record indicates, that he consistently put corporate interests ahead of the nation's wildlife, natural heritage, and climate. In Congress, Zink cast 21 votes against endangered species protections. At his confirmation hearing, he endorsed increased fossil fuel extraction on public lands. And that's the news for this week. For EcoReport, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Juliana Daly. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us if you have any thoughts about stories we've aired or if you have any future story ideas. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. EcoReport is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. In today's eco-report feature, we'll hear a report from Sarah Vaughn about efforts to include a local food system in long-range plans for Bloomington. In April of 2015, the City Council endorsed the Bloomington Food Charter, a multi-year, multi-stakeholder effort to ensure people in Monroe County could have access to nutritious food. Ryan Conway is head of the steering committee of the Food Policy Council, the group that created the Bloomington Food Charter. Conway supports the idea that the city's 2040 comprehensive plan should address local food systems and specifically should include the food charter. The food charter itself actually outlines that 
um, the city consider food as an essential component of the planning process when determining land use and transportation policies. I mean, especially in regard to ensuring that adequate access to healthful food and an increase in neighborhood access to points of local food could be ensured. Um, and so when City Council adopted this, I mean, it's meant to be a document that informs policy decision-making. Um, so it is um, strange on that note that food um, planning and, and food systems have not made it into the land use and transportation portions of the current draft of the CMP. Now, what's more concerning is the fact that not only had the city endorsed the food charter, but the visioning body um, for the comprehensive master plan uh, did include nurturing a vital local food system as one of its key points of things that absolutely had to be in the comprehensive plan. So noting these two policy precedents, the fact that it is absent, that food systems are absent from the current draft of the plan is somewhat troubling. Conway says many American cities are including food systems into their master plans. In 2014, I believe, there was an American Planning Association study done on the integration of food systems into master plans. And so we've been consulting with um, that research and uh, the person who wrote that research to try and get more information that we could provide to the planning department and the planning commission and the city council um, to make it easier for them to uh, process the, the, the bulk of information related to food systems planning and the hopes that they can integrate it into the plan. When asked how city government might nurture local food systems, Conway gives two examples. First, he says being aware of Bloomington's food deserts is vital to what he calls an honest assessment of land use and food policy. Maps of Bloomington's food deserts would be an important addition to the land use chapter of the comp plan, he says. Second, Conway suggests creating agricultural innovation districts. He describes these agricultural innovation districts as a flexible overlay to existing land use categories, like the core residential or urban land use categories. This specific kind of special district can create incentives for property owners, business owners, and residents to do things like uh, use the uh, arable land on their properties to cultivate food. That could either be donated to local food pantries, um, kept for consumption in the home or an apartment complex, or even sold at the farmer's market or a, you know, a neighborhood farmer's market, um, perhaps on weekends or especially in an area with food deserts. The city's assistant director of planning, Scott Robinson, says people can already grow food on their own properties. As for agricultural innovation districts, he says the city will have to examine more closely where that zoning overlay might apply. But as some people may or may not know, uh, there's not a lot of developable land left in in the corporate boundaries of the city. And so, you know, there's certainly different shapes and forms of urban agriculture and, and trying to identify those opportunities. You know, certainly people uh, can participate in uh, selling their produce at the farmer's market. You know, there's community gardens. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to look at um, what the, what's out there now, you know, getting into the specifics of in- incentives or overlay districts and those things, we'd have to look at the more detailed look at that. Will the city include the food charter in its comprehensive plan? Robinson says the plan commission will be considering it. Well, that's something that we're considering. One of the things that staff has been working with is the plan commission. Um, we've been scheduling work sessions with them. 
We haven't discussed the food policy yet. I anticipate that discussion to come up a little bit more in detail in one of our future uh, work sessions. Um, in the environmental chapter, you know, we did discuss some land uses and other um, areas, but that specific topic has not specifically been discussed. But you are correct. We did receive a lot of material or detailed information on, on the food policy discussion. Uh, the Environmental Commission would be one that we would look to on that. Uh, Bloomington Commission on Sustainability would be another group. Um, you know, you mentioned food deserts. Uh, you know, there's uh, economic development. There's a lot of different areas that this could play into, so we could certainly, again, look to leveraging um, those boards and commissions to, to flesh out some of those details. Of, you know, one of the things that the Comprehensive Master Plan is looking to do is identify this as a first step. You know, we're not going to prescribe any things that far down the road. So again, this is mostly a direction on that first step on if food policy is an important thing for us to look at as a community, how are, what are things that we can do to address that? According to Conway, the last iteration of the Comprehensive Plan, then called the Growth Policies Plan, set a precedent for addressing local food systems. And a quarter of the document is devoted towards an implementation strategy that identifies um, core policy goals and program goals um, the timeline to completion, agencies that would be involved, um, what kind of funding would be needed, etc. The current plan will completely lack any mention of strategic plan or strategic implementation in this respect, which is actually in violation of a core uh, process principle that the APA has endorsed as recently as 2015 um, regarding uh, accountable implementation as a key um, a part and key process of a master plan. Conway has also participated in the City Council's Affordable Living Study Group. He says that group has considered the availability of healthy food as an important factor in affordable living. The committee members of council, uh, which are Susan Sandberg, Chris Durbaum, and Tim Mayer, have been very receptive to innovative ways of uh, adjusting zoning ordinances and other local laws to make it easier for Bloomingtonians and folks in Monterey County to access uh, healthy, nutritious local food. In a conversation today, City Council Member Susan Sandberg said she and fellow City Council Member Dave Rollo are indeed sympathetic to the issue of nurturing local food systems through public policies. Sandberg says she expects to see a host of food system-related issues up for consideration by the City Council in the coming months. But the City of Bloomington is more than a decade behind schedule in producing an updated comprehensive plan. The city's last comprehensive plan, the Growth Policies Plan, was updated in 2002. Conway worries that in the push to get an updated comp plan, city administrators might not be giving the issue of food systems much attention. Robinson says he hopes to have the next draft version of the comp plan available in late spring, but couldn't say whether a food charter will be included. We are still working hard with the plan commission to get their feedback on the current draft that's posted online. Staff is um, coordinating that feedback along with the public comments received to make revisions. Um, And then we hope to uh, have a draft hopefully later this spring. The review process for finalizing the 2040 Comprehensive Plan is extensive, and Robinson said he doesn't have a final deadline for it. He notes, though, that approximately 190 amendments were proposed to the Growth Policies Plan while it was being approved in 2002 by the Plan Commission and the City Council. Robinson said the public will have more opportunities to review the next draft of the 2040 Comp Plan after it's made public this spring. Reporting for WFHB, I'm Sarah Vaughn.
You're listening to Eco Report on WFHB, bringing you environmental watchdog reporting from South Central Indiana. Eco Report is currently seeking volunteer journalists to contribute short weekly headlines about ecological issues from indigenous resistance to infrastructure projects to climate change and biological diversity. Commitment is light, and you can set your own schedule. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call at 812-323-1200. And here's our weekly events calendar. You can join the Indiana Forest Alliance on Monday, February 20th from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. at the Indiana State House in the South Atrium in Indianapolis to stand up for your forest. Stop the 400% increase in logging in Indiana State Forest. Register at forestrallyeventbrite.com. For more information, go to info at indianaforestalliance.org or call 317-602-3692. The Wild Side of Mushrooms will be presented at Brown County State Park on Saturday, February 18th from 2 to 3 p.m. Meet in the Auditorium Nature Center to learn how to find and identify wild mushrooms. Learn how to make maple syrup the easy way during a hands-on workshop presented by Josh Nicholson at the RCA Community Park on Saturday, February 18th from 10 to 11 a.m. Register by February 10th at bloomington.in.gov parks. Would you like to raise chickens? Enjoying a get, enjoy a Getting Started with a Backyard Chickens class offered by the Community Gardening Program on Saturday, February 18th from 1 to 4 p.m. at Hilltop Gardens at Indiana University. Register by February 16th at the bloomington.ingov slash parks for more information. Contact Robin Katowski at 812-349-3704 or go to Hobson, H-O-B-S-O-N, at bloomington.in.gov. And if you would like to support Lakota water protectors at Standing Rock with trumped-up felony charges related to anti-pipeline demonstrations, you can donate money to the Lakota People's Law Project Legal Fund. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by Solar Systems of Indiana, designing and installing renewable energy systems. SSI is a member of the North American Board of Certified Energy Practitioners and works to foster the acceptance of solar energy across the Midwest through education and consultation. More information by phone at 812-336-2785 or online at solarsystemsofindiana.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Kate O'Rourke, Dominic Jean, Dylan Maloney, and Aaron Comforti, who also edited the script. Our events calendar was compiled by Juliana Daly. Our feature was produced by Sarah Vaughn. Our broadcast engineer is Matt Griffin, and our executive producer is Joe Crawford. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Juliana Daly. 
Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news and resistance. Until then, EcoReport encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the EcoReport staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.